Welcome to ThinkBox Radio, news, tips, and stories from America's coolest college innovation center. We're coming to you from Sears ThinkBox, the innovation center at Case Western Reserve University, the largest makerspace on an American college campus. Our goal is to share the magic that happens here and inspire your own maker dreams. I'm Robert Smith, your host. Our producer is Alex Zinni, and today our guest is Larry Sears. As in Sears Think Box. Larry, welcome to the show. How do you do? So Larry graduated in 1969 with a degree in electrical engineering. Became the visionary behind Think Box. But before we get to that, I want to take you to when Larry started out and did something that I think was really cool because you almost have to be my age to really appreciate this. And he's the guy who did away with the gas man. So come back with me to the 60s and 70s when you had meter readers. And this was a guy who would come to your house on a regular basis, bang on the door and yell, gas man, and go down the basement and read the, read the meter. The water guy did this. The gas man did this. And Larry came up with the innovation that did away with that role. He invented remote automatic meter reading, circa 1982. Yeah, that's a good date. Well, no, no. Actually, it, it really started to go about 1995. But before that, automated. there was his startup called Hexagram, right here near the campus of Case Western Reserve. So, Larry, tell us a little bit about Hexagram and what it did and how you got it started. Okay, well, um, it was really driven by the fact that I just like to make things. That's all there is to it. I was just, you know, that was my obsession. And so I figured that uh, after I got my degree, I could go to work for a big company, and I would, they'd put me on a plane, and I'd go, you know, tour these places. But it just didn't feel right. I figured if I was going to make things, I wanted to figure out what I wanted to make. I really didn't want anybody telling me what to do. So I got this grand idea that I could uh, start a company that would be known as a design and build company, where people would come to me with problems or, or projects or things they want made, and I would happily make them for them, and they would pay me a lot of money, and, and that would be my business. Um, as an undergraduate, I had a terrific uh, opportunities here at Case for working with professors, doing research. Uh, I would take little consulting jobs. They would take me out with them to factories and, and, and companies looking at projects. I would come back and build them for them or test them, whatever. And uh, that was a great component of my education, probably the key component. Um, it wasn't based on what I learned in the classroom because, frankly, I had better things to do uh, than go to the class. But uh, usually I was making, busy making things in, in, on my uh, in my bedroom off Coventry, but uh, but it was seriously, it was, a, you know, I, I did pick up some theory along the way, but I really did well picking up, uh, it was really early integrated circuits, early solid state technology, you know, back in, say, 1965, electronics was really coming, you know, just, just you know, pushing aside vacuum tubes at that time. So I, I sort of was here at the, uh, at, you know, at the ground level, and uh, I just love to do it. So I figured that once I graduated, um, you know, I would, I would give it a go on my own. And so I, uh, I rented for $100 a month a storefront on, on Murray Hill. In Little uh, Italy, in Little right Italy, next door here. Right, just adjacent to the campus. Okay. And uh, 
um, you know, nice space and uh, a great neighborhood. And uh, I waited for people to walk in. And actually, my very first customers were uh, some professors who wanted uh, sort of educational equipment built, like the famous Harry Mergler, for example. I made some little digital experimental boxes for him. And we'd make, you know, 50 of them for the students. So that, uh, you know, that was fun, and I learned a lot. And then I got involved, actually, with General Electric, which was just a couple miles away, uh, General Electric Lighting. It's still oh, sure. there. And it, it was curious. Uh, of course, these were all incandescent lamps at the time. And the people that worked at GE were basically metallurgists and glass blowers and materials people. Um, but they needed some electronics because things were just starting to, you were just starting to look at, for example, solid-state ballast for fluorescent lamps and different, and even some very early LEDs that were developed there. Um, and so I made some connections there, and I would just walk into a building, and, and there's no security, just walk around and ask people if they needed anything made. And so I would build really mostly one-of-a-kind test equipment, um, optical equipment, photometry measurement equipment, uh, equipment, for example, for calculating wattage of lamps, and they kept me very busy. And I would hire students and, uh, you know, basically street people to, you know, help me put the stuff together and students to do, you know, some, some design work. And uh, uh, it kept me going for several years. This and would be the uh, early to mid-70s? Yes, yeah. And then uh, it was, you know, starting around uh, 71, something like that. And uh, that went on for quite some time. We built some machine controls, uh, really whatever they need, some, you know, big test racks. Um, and then that you know, morphed into other uh, jobs. And, and some of them did turn into production opportunities. Like we made the first, world's first computerized embroidery machine. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And uh, that was, uh, I had a student do the, the software there with a teletype and, you know, ones and zeros. And uh, that was pretty advanced for its day. Okay. It really was. In fact, that gentleman, Paul Franklin, is now an adjunct here. Oh, gosh. He retired and As are you. came back. Okay. Right, yeah. So, uh, so that, well, that was an exciting project. And, you know, little by little, more things like that came in. We ended up making most of the country's car wash controls. We, really? We had a relationship with a, a company that wanted to sort of uh, digitize, automate the process. So we made the computers that turned the pumps on and off and the you know the soap sud soap suds dispenser and so um that was that was a good business so hexagram also. was a busy little place it was but the problem was that you didn't have a lot of control over the destiny your customer could drop dead you know and, and the project would be over or uh, for example the embroidery machine company was bought by a Japanese company who supplied their own electronics and that business just overnight one phone call it disappeared hmm. And, you know, that was very good business. And so... Um, the perils of a small business owner. Yeah, that business was a million dollars a year, which, wow. you know, that was So what tremendous. got you into the meter reading Well, business? I decided that what I really should have is a pro to guarantee uh, sort of the long-term stability, I needed a proprietary product. Okay. And that's one where instead of doing designing to order, designing and building to order, um, which I should as an aside, is not a bad way to go because there's very little risk. And you don't need to know, you don't need much financing because I could always build and ship the product before I had to pay for the parts. 
hmm. because the customer would want, you know, 100 of these so I could get the parts in really fast, build it really fast, and ship it. And, you know, hopefully I'd get paid pretty, you know, soon enough that I wouldn't have to pay for the parts yet. And so, and I also didn't need marketing. I didn't, you know, I certainly didn't have to, you know, finance it on a great level because instead of building things and putting them on the shelf and then waiting for people to buy them, putting in a box and shipping them, I would build, you know, 100 of these things, ship them to the customer, get paid all at once, and that was it. So I didn't really have to market on a broad scale. Sure. I wasn't marketing to the, to the world or anything. Um, so it, it's a simplified business, and it, it, it can be a very attractive business. Um, but then I decided, no, I had, you know, I wanted something with, uh, uh, you know, a little more of a, a stable future. And because I only had, you know, a limited number of customers. Um, but a proprietary product where you're handling everything, you're handling the development, the marketing, the warehousing, the shipping, all that kind of stuff, um, a lot more risk. But you have, you know, I mean, sorry, not not a lot more risk, but the requirements are much stiffer. You have to have a real company mm -hmm. because you're vertically integrated. But on the other hand, you have many customers, so the risk is somewhat reduced. So I decided, I thought about it a while, and decided that uh, the world needs a better way to read meters. Okay, and, and we rather than having some guy schlepping down the street in the yes. in the rain, you know, uh, you know, writing stuff down literally with paper and pencil. Yes. Um, and we should remind our listeners, this is pre-Wi-Fi, pre-Bluetooth, oh, pre-any of that. Yeah, right. And, um, yeah, you certainly had no networks. You didn't even have cell phones, you know. Um, the various early attempts at this business was they would have a handheld computer. And it was roughly the size of a shoebox. And it had a big leather handle on it. And it was supposed to be waterproof. And the memory was a digital cassette. So usually, the, you know, he'd walk down the street with the, you know, the tape, you know, squirting out a machine laying on the sidewalk, but they would try to use these early computers to record the meter readings so that the meter reader could then go back to the office where this machine would download the data. And we made a system like that also. That was sort of our entree into the, into the business. But what the world really wanted was a system that did not require meter readers. Those early systems merely recorded the data. You still had a meter reader. Still had to have a human being exactly. Go to the meter in the house. And, and there were some versions where maybe they could walk down the, the street and they had a short range transmitter, like a garage door opener transmitter. But those were pretty primitive systems. Okay. And, and they still had a meter reader. And the problem was, if you had a if you had a question about your bill, they'd have to send a meter reader out, and that cost that, that cost in those days thirty five dollars. You know, I mean, that was your water bill, and, wow. and it cost yeah. just to do what was called an ad hoc read. So you wanted to get rid of the meter readers. You wanted to be able, the utility wanted to be able to sit in their office and get all the meter reads when they needed them. So this was obviously a networked system. So what did you? But there weren't any with? networks. What was your breakthrough here? Well, the idea was that you needed a very powerful radio transmitter. Um, if, you know, if you look at all the probabilities of reception, all that kind of thing, you need a transmitter that has to have tremendous specifications. The line of sight range had to be about 50 miles, oh and it had to run on a AA battery for 20 years, and it had to transmit 50 miles if it was buried under the ground. That would be high-tech today. Oh, yeah. It's difficult. It's very difficult. 
And um, so people tried very low power systems that would go a few hundred feet and then they would have repeaters and all kinds of schemes. Did you, you must work. have looked at that challenge and, and thought you could do this? Well, what I knew was that the, the sort of the breakthrough was you needed a transmitter that would go a long distance because the cost per acre, or whatever you want to call it, the cost per coverage, uh, for the unit of coverage, obviously the farther your device could transmit, the fewer data collectors you needed. So our proposal, or our approach was that, I figured that if a transmitter would go about 50 or 75 miles line of sight, that by the time you had it in a basement in Manhattan, it might go a mile with some reliability. And that's exactly, that's about right. Okay. The problem is that transmitters are controlled by the FCC. And a transmitter that could transmit a long distance has to be, you know, a relatively robust transmitter. It had to meet all kinds of requirements. You're talking radio waves. Yes, exactly. And in those days, uh, that transmitter was a couple hundred dollars. Okay. And it was on the, uh, it was in a taxi cab or a police car. And totally inappropriate, you know, it ran on a big car battery or you plugged it in. And, and you know, taxi cabs would use them and stuff. And so it, it was called a Part 90 uh, radio system. And the FCC, that was the, the paragraph of the FCC book that governs it. And you had to have very, very strict requirements of frequency control and uh, uh, bandwidth and all, all kinds of requirements, you know, that you had to be able to occupy just a very sli thin sliver of the spectrum so you didn't, you know, mess up a lot of other people. And doing that would tend to limit your range and cost a lot of money. And we had to do it for 10 bucks. And again, typically those were a couple hundred dollar radios. So um, it was a challenge, needless to say. And so just with all kinds of, you know, attention to detail, we built a lot of the equipment ourselves, you know, in terms of the manufacturing and calibration equipment and all you that. You built a device that could do this. Yeah, yeah. A, a little disc they call the star? N well, no, no, no. It was, a, it was a, a circuit board, basically, that went in a little box and um, attached to the gas meter or the water meter in various ways, picked up the reading, and you know, depending on the type of meter. And uh, then this thing would be, you know, and then screwed to the wall someplace, yeah. inside, outside, underground, it didn't matter. Yeah. And uh, it met the requirements. It worked. Yeah, yeah. And so nobody bought it. Right out of the box, it worked. Yeah, but nobody bought nobody it. Nobody bought it. No, they wouldn't believe it worked. I know it. And um, why would you buy something from a little tiny company that, you know, you had to depend on this yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. It was tough. That's uh, that's what I want to get into next with you, the, the odyssey of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, so you invented uh, remote automatic meter reading mm -hmm. using um, radio frequency mm -hmm. uh, right. that could work for millions of customers. Oh, yeah. yeah. And here you are in the, this little shop in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And I remember you telling me about a year ago that you still shudder to pass a holiday in because you spent <laughs> right. so much time at crappy yeah. trade shows. Well, let me, let me go a couple, couple you know. Uh, facts here. For example, I, I just dug this up. Um, the competition, you know, these were big companies. I mean, they were selling to utilities and all that kind of stuff. So Motorola and Schlumberger put $30 million into a company to do exactly what we were going to do. And could they do what you do? Well, they, they intended to. 
Um, so in other words, when I say do what we did, they were trying to build a long range, a transmitter with, a, with long range that would meet the FCC requirements, and they couldn't. And this was Motorola. Schlumberger was in the utility business, Motorola obviously was in the electronics business, and it was disbanded. They couldn't meet the specs. The FCC, it turns out, in 1996, tightened up the specs. Meanwhile, were and they you gave raising up. your hand saying, hey, I got this? Yeah, but nobody paid any attention. Oh. Yeah. So, because they said, well, Motorola can't do it, so why should they? Sure. So it was, it was pretty, pretty tough there for a while. It was very, very, you know, like I say, the... The trade shows were horrible. I would, you know, I suffered anxiety when I would have to go to these things because, you know, these were big companies. They were selling inferior equipment, but they had, you know, fifty hundred thousand dollar booths with mm. mod. You know, they would hire models. You know, literally. <laughs> you know, and, what did you, you have? We had tag board and a magic marker. You know, <laughs> you know, leaning up against, uh, you know, Coke bottle. I mean, okay. it was horrible. I was just so intimidated. Okay, you know? so terrible. So, so people don't think it's too dour. We should say that you were able to sell the company for sixty-eight million dollars. No, it, it was much later than it was much. It was uh, nineteen. 1990, wait, what was it? No, 2000, 2006. That's 2006. Right, 2006, you, right, you were able right, to sell the right. company. Yeah. By then, you're, you had 12 to 13 million of your devices all over uh, the country. Now there's about 15 million of them. Okay. I just checked that, yeah. What, was there a breakthrough? Yeah, there was a, again, nobody would buy it, um, and nobody believed it worked. So somebody had to take a plunge. There was a utility with, I don't know, 30,000 customers or something in Canton, Ohio, you know, a couple hours from here. And that utility um, uh, basically had been shut down because of corruption and their system had collapsed. So they hired a very smart professional engineer, not a, you know, not a, a, a you know, a politician that, you know, was somebody's brother-in-law, to take over the system and they gave him a contract to run it. And he was so desperate because, um, People had been stealing meat, had been stealing water. Uh, you know, you pay off the meter reader, and or they turn the meter around. There's all kinds of problems. He had no revenue, so he had to fire all the meter readers. But then he needed new meter readers, so he said, "Well, <laughs> somehow we heard about it, and um, he was desperate. He bought the system. Yeah. So I still remember the very first day, um, waiting in his office because our devices would be installed. We had like five people installing them. And they would wake up and they would start to transmit the meter readings. And, of course, it was really exciting to, you know, get this stuff. You know, oh, it's really working, you know. And then the readings were going backwards. Uh-oh. In other words, it looked as if the, reader, the meters were spinning backwards, like people were sending water the other way. And what had happened was, was that so many people were stealing water by reversing the water meter Oh, my gosh. That literally they were, you know, getting their bills to be negative. I mean, the system was just, <laughs> yeah, so I shouldn't tell people. But <laughs> the fittings are the same on the water meters. You can turn it around. But anyways, um, so that was, that, was, that was interesting. And it shows you the value of the system because we could pick up theft by various algorithms. We could pick up leaks, do all kinds of things. So it worked for this yeah, and, customer, yeah, first and, customer. And the way this thing worked was that we would put receivers little single board computers with radio receivers on about a mile grid. Okay, so we'd put them on schools or post office or hang them on telephone poles. And they were solar powered and they would just sit there and wait for the readings uh, to, to collect the readings from these, you know, things scattered around. 
And then um, every night they would send the uh, meterings back to the utility. But since there weren't any real data networks then, we used a bag cell phone. Remember the cell phones? In, they were called bag phones. They were car phones. Those huge ones? Those huge things they, they would have. It looked like, a, like an old black telephone, a big box yeah. and, and a handset. So we'd cut off the handset, and we'd plug in our digital data and send it as an audio signal, and it worked. And that was a very inexpensive way of, 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 of setting up a network because we would use night and weekend rates. So, so like, <laughs> we had a competitor, of course, who went out of business, and they made their own um, network, you know, of radio channel. But why make your own network when you get it for $10, you know, $10 a month or something? So, I mean, that's what I like to think is an example of being resourceful and, yes. you know, somewhat clever about it. So Somewhat um, clever, finding the easiest right. path. I mean, to, to set up a network like that costs, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars you know to set up a network like that Using we, just used, technology. we just used a, yeah 80 dollars cell phone so is um this technology you pioneers is it still out there is it still being used oh yeah yeah i mean it's it's advanced tremendously but it still uses the narrowband transmitter part 90 and the um the devices on the roofs uh, have changed, uh, for example, um, they'll, they might, they'll use the cellular network, but it'll be a 4G, you know, advanced network or microwave, or they'll use Wi-Fi if a city has Wi-Fi. So, okay. So they're very versatile. They'll, they'll okay. Yeah, so. Um, so how did you persevere? It, it took years to get people to listen to you, then use well, it you, right. Well, you persevere by not running out of money. Ah, you I mean, you have a tremendous investment in this thing. Well, we had the subcontracting business going. Um, and that, you know, making the uh, car wash controls, for example. Okay. So, you know, we, we did the best we could with that business. But, of course, all the resources were directed towards the meter reading. So it was a, it was a balancing act. But it was tough. I mean, my, uh, my controller said we should just shut the doors. We just can't, you know, go on because couldn't make payroll or anything, and that happened a couple of times. Because banks, you know, people forget, banks only loan you money when you don't need it. You know, and you have to have collateral and all that kind of stuff. So uh, everything I own was collateralized. And know. when did you know you, you were going to make it? Uh, what happened was, was that we did the system in Canton, and then I think we did a couple of other system, little systems, little suburbs and stuff, um, we also had gotten some traction by putting in apartment buildings because you had landlords all over the country who own apartments all over the country, and how do they get their meter readings? Well, they would have to send a custodian out or something. So it turns out we could take an apartment building and install our system okay. and put one data collector on the roof or one data collector for a big apartment complex and then call it in with the, cell, you know, the telephone and uh, get the meter readings that way. And that turned out to be um, a lifesaver. It was a business decision in the sense that we could only get half the price for it. So in other words, instead of selling it for $100, we were forced to sell it for $50. Hmm. But it kept the doors open. Okay. And we'd sell them, you know, 100 at a time or 500 at a time. I mean, it, it, it kept the doors open. So it was a good decision. And my controller said we were crazy. We should just close the doors. But it covered some expenses, and it paid some of the rent. And, you know, yeah, maybe don't listen of, to these controllers, huh? Yeah, and I was, I was on the one that was losing my house. So, you know, so it was tough, you know. 
So it, that went on for a few years. It was well, hard, you know. congratulations for persevering, yeah. for inventing. It worked. Yeah. Now, in 2006, when uh, you were able to sell the company, and um, that year you made a big contribution to Case to found the Undergraduate Design Lab. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you did that, you said this to the uh, local newspaper. Somewhere down the line, the education system stopped teaching the real-world side of things. And I see the start of ThinkBox forming mm-hmm. here. Hands-on stuff. It's fundamental to engineering. It's a building block for every entrepreneurial situation. What, what, were you, what did you mean there, and why were you so passionate well, about that? Well, the, the um, reality of it was it, it was sort of a situational thing because – when I was an undergraduate, that whole, just about the whole floor of Glennon Building, Glennon Building was actually new then, um, was labs. It had a machine shop, and then the, it had, you know, instrument room and labs and all that. There was no offices or anything like that. By 19, uh, by 2005 or so, it was almost gone. You know, they had one little lab, and the rest of it was back office. I think the Alumni Association had some space there. Well, sure. And, you know, they, the, the copy machines were there. And, I mean, it was just, it was, you know, it had just been relegated to, you know, to nothing. So the arrangement is or was that I, you know, wanted that lab restored the way it was and have the uh, department, EECS department office there and, um, you know, just outfitted very nicely so it could it'd be the kind of uh, – you know, test equipment, bench setup that you'd have in industry, and then staffing it such that the professors who never like to do labs because labs are a lot of work could depend on the staff of that undergraduate laboratory to develop labs okay. for them. And then, you know, we have people stock the parts and take care of everything and fix the equipment. So it is a very, very nice setup. It's really worked out. Okay. Well. So schools had gotten away from the hands on stuff. Now it's coming back, right. and mm-hmm. which which you think was attributed mm-hmm. to your success, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you wanted to bring it back, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to pause there, Larry, for a word from our sponsor. Stay with us; we'll be right back. Thinkbox Radio is brought to you by the Case Alumni Association, which represents the engineering, science, and math graduates of Case Western Reserve University. We're the oldest independent alumni association of engineering and applied science graduates in America. Have you heard of us? If not, you've heard of our graduates. Case grads include Henry Dow, the founder of Dow Chemical, Frank Rudy, the inventor of Nike Aerosol, Paul Buchheit, the creator of Gmail, and Jeanette Griselli-Brown, the first female director of corporate research at BP America. At Case, we're proud of our spirit of discovery and innovation, which is why we support ThinkBox, the world-class innovation center at the Case School of Engineering. So in 2012, the prototype of ThinkBox started, I think, in the basement of Glennon Hall. And that was the start of this, what is now a seven-story innovation center. Um, You were part of the visionary behind that. What were you thinking? Well, what happened was somebody had given a a nice donation for advanced manufacturing equipment, but there really wasn't a place for it. You know, they had you know, looked at a couple different situations. Space is hard to come by in a university, so I was tasked with just walking around. And in the process, I started to think that this isn't isn't just a couple of 3D printers, you know, chugging away. This could really be interesting. There could be a lot here, you know, in terms of entrepreneurship, and we can go beyond simply the, you know, the uh, the prototyping aspect of it. 
And so I thought if, if, if we had the right space, we could really expand this into something. And my concept here was that if you sell it as an educational, educational facility, teach people how things are made, teach people to run the equipment, that's great. But if you tie it to entrepreneurship, commercialization, innovation, jobs, now you'll get a lot of other people excited. And so there is this parallel track here, and that's what got, you know, people excited about, you know, endowing this and, and helping, helping it to get off the ground. And in the process, I was just wandering around, and this was a, a warehouse that was just sitting here. It was filled with old desks and weird old equipment. The old Lincoln storage building. Yes, exactly. It wasn't even locked that day. I just walked in. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it was so, when they, when, they, when they cleaned it out, to give you an idea, it was so, the stuff was so useless, I didn't even take any home. I mean, I couldn't, it was nothing here. It was terrible. So anyway, but it was a great building to restore, I mean, because there's no asbestos and the right size and all that. So um, people were interested in, in, you know, in, in donating to it and, and funding it, um, giving it a strong endowment. And I thought it would take about 10 years, 15 years to do it and build the endowment. Well, it took 30 years to do the student union, to get a new student union. Um, but here we are. I mean, it's it'll, you know we're we're working on the first floor now. So people were excited. Oh, uh, yeah. People contributed. I in terms of the programs, in terms of the um, you know the, the the mentoring, in terms of the uh, uh, the interaction with uh, other departments, uh, getting patents, you know, getting uh, advice from the business school. Um, mentoring by professors, venture capital, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it, the, the programs are really exciting. I never thought it would be this, that it would be humming so much. Well, in, in 2015, the university announced your $10 million donation to Sears ThinkBox, um, named for yourself and your wife, Sally, whom you met at Case. You've seen other maker centers. Um, what did you want to be different about ThinkBox? Well, I think I think honestly, scope has something to do with it. I mean, very often a maker center is, you know, in the basement of the library. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to belittle anyone, but you know, there there's a lot here. I think we had the last count, 24 3D printing machines, you know. Mm. So uh, and a I'm very traditional in some respects. I insisted on um, you know just a row of milling machines, good old fashioned milling machines that you turn the cranks. And uh, the same with Lay's. I noticed I a lot of just traditional hardware exactly. here. Exactly. You should learn the basics. In other words, a lot of universities, if, if people do any metal cutting, uh, they would do it on CAD-based machinery, which is fine, except before you do that, you should, you know, learn how it works, you know, and see it. Um, so I'm a strong believer in, in equipment like that. And the fact that you come here and you can learn how to weld, and you can take a course in welding, and, you know, all this stuff is free. Can learn how to operate a milling machine and a lathe, you know, from an expert. And you know, anybody, anybody off the street can come in and do that. You don't even have it's to a be a case maker student. Center. Absolutely, you don't even have to be a case was student. Was that part of the vision from the start? It was something I insisted on from the start. Why I'm is not that? sure why. Okay. It seemed like the uh, a notable thing to do. Okay. And then we got money from the state, ah. and the state uh, agreed. So it's sort of locked in now. Okay. But from an entrepreneurial standpoint, we're, we're trying to build opportunities, you know, for the community and all that. You know, why restrict it to a case student? Why couldn't it be from some other university? The guy who cuts my lawn comes here all the time. You know, he makes signs and 
experiments and stuff. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So I, I, I think that's great. Yeah. And a good percentage of our users are from the community. So, and you seem pretty pleased with that. Yeah, I think that. And it's it's very unique to, to Makerspaces that anybody can walk in and, and use it. And, you know, I mean, it's a burden on us, but it's worth it. Yeah. So, so Larry, you've, you've got all this now. We've got five floors of ThinkBox. I think the sixth floor was just finished. No, we have seven floors, yes. The, the final two floors are still being built? No, no, they're done. They're done. Right, right. What's going to happen up there? The, the sixth floor touches? is sort of the business uh, development floor. That's where you would meet with uh, a venture capitalist, or that's where you would have a, uh, you know, a, a course on entrepreneurship or you know, a, a, a lecture from a banker, or you would meet with... Uh, uh, you know, the various groups that help with business development, you know, state-sponsored groups, local development corporations. Uh, so that's the purpose of that floor. And it's a lot of co-working space, too, but it's finished out very nicely. It's, you know, like, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan up there. You heard it from Larry Sears. Okay, that concludes another episode of ThinkBox Radio, stories from America's coolest college innovation center. I'm Robert Smith, your host. Our producer is Alex Zinni. Thanks, and remember, our motto at Case Western Reserve is, think beyond the possible. <laughs>